are entering the Freedom Hut. A showdown at the border. A migrant caravan of thousands is en route to the U.S.-Mexico border, and President Trump says it must be stopped. And if necessary, he'll send the military to shut this down. Also, what is the game-changer issue in the midterms that the media doesn't want to talk about? I've got that for you and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to be with you live from the swamp today, as per usual. Oh my, oh my. We have a showdown looming at the southern border. And I don't think anybody would believe that the timing of this is a coincidence. Here's what I... And and now, can I tell you who's behind it or who's encouraging it? Well, first of all, our our media is basically encouraging it. You know that they're rooting for this group of, they say, about 4,000 people now mostly from Honduras, but but who knows, on the way to our southern border. But here's what, here's what they're hoping will happen. This creates an opportunity for the media to force the American people to listen to a narrative, a narrative that we heard all summer. The narrative is going to be that Trump is heartless, that he is racist, that the Republican Party is a bunch of evil, xenophobic, hateful people who will do anything that they can in order to prevent non-white people from entering the United States. And oh, by the way, they'll also start talking a lot more about child separation at the border because that was what they thought their key was going to be in the midterms. Since the Kavanaugh hearings and, and some other issues in between, mostly the Kavanaugh hearing, Uh, that's fallen away from the headlines. They want to bring it right back up front, and they see this as an opportunity to do so. And thus we sit here, and with each passing hour, this caravan gets closer and closer to the United States. In fact, a few hundred have, according to reporters, oh, that's right, there are lots of reporters that are covering this. So this is like a, it's really a mobile protest. This is international activism and they are moving across Mexican territory and they'll be in the U.S. soon or at the U.S. border soon but they have uh, had a few hundred break away and take buses or hop rides and cars whatever it may be so they can get there early so they're already at the border and the way this will be covered is these are people that are refugees they are not refugees And even if they can try to, under law, claim refugee status, we should be willing to stop and say, hold on a second. These are not people that are fleeing a civil war. These are not people who are fleeing a natural disaster. They are not individuals targeted by their own government. They are not refugees. They are people who want to come to the United States because it is better here than it is there. And while I am sympathetic to that position as a human being, That's true of a whole lot of places. But the deciding factor should not be, are you within walking distance of America? 
That's not how our immigration system is supposed to work. We have laws. We have laws that are in place specifically so that we do not have people show up and just stay. If we didn't have those laws, yes, we'd be an open border state. The Democrats, though, are planning to demagogue this issue. They are going to use this to try and get their base fired up. They're going to try to use this to create this sense of uh, moral separation between the Trump administration and the Democrat Party and between the Republicans who support Trump on this issue and the Democrats. And it is very likely that these individuals who are going to show up at the border will end up in the interior of the United States. Uh, They will be processed, but if they claim asylum, if they turn themselves in uh, and they claim asylum, they are going to get a hearing. The hearing will be delayed, so you'll have another wave and another wave. What happens when you have a law that is not enforced? What happens when the state has decided there are actions that are bad, but there are no consequences for that bad behavior? Well, we're seeing this happen right now. It is so very easy for Democrats, particularly well-off, connected, coastal elite Democrats who don't compete with illegal immigrants for jobs, who don't have to worry about illegal immigrants uh, and draining resources from over already overcrowded public schools, public schools that are attended by Americans of all ethnic backgrounds, of all religions. They don't have to worry about that. It doesn't affect them. In fact... They view it as nothing but win-win by being essentially for open borders from Latin America, at least, in this country. The Democrats get to feel morally superior. They get to achieve power and perhaps even eventually defeat the Republican Party forever by changing the demographics of this country such that there will be a majority of voters built in for always and and forever, for the foreseeable future at least, will vote Democrat. Because they know that immigrants, particularly people, well, (laughs) I say particularly illegal immigrants, they're not supposed to vote for them, but who really knows what's happening there? Uh, But but immigrants in general uh, tend to vote Democrat, and people who come to the country and have a greater need for all kinds of government services are obviously going to vote for the party of big government, the party of the state and statism. That's the Democrats. Now, why is it a bad thing for the president to say, enough, stop, we can't keep doing this? The answer is that it's not. But they won't ever tell you. The Democrats, the media, when they set up this problem, they won't act like there are two sides to it. They're not going to present this as, hey, We understand this is a very difficult problem. Uh, This is how we come down on this, and we would like the president to take the following actions. No, they want to point fingers and scream racist, and they want photos of crying children being separated from parents. They want photos of people looking hopeless and indigent being told by Immigration and Customs Enforcement or being told by Border Patrol in this case, you know, you're you're now going to be taken into custody. Uh, And they hope to make this an emotional issue. If it's really that emotional for them, why don't they just make the case that the imagery makes for them, which is, well, I guess we should just take in everyone. And everybody everybody who has been waiting in line for years, who's been going through the legal process, and who has respected our laws, 
uh, many people who are still waiting to get into this country and who have respected our laws all along, I, I guess they're just chumps. They don't have you know, MSNBC, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post in their corner, so they don't count. This is very, very destructive. It's also ultimately an issue of sovereignty. If the United States cannot determine who comes here and under what circumstances, then it is just a matter of time before the United States ceases to exist as a polity. We will be a different country, a different political union, if we don't control who comes and who goes. You cannot have open borders and a welfare state. I think the answer is, or really the truth is, you can't have open borders and a state. You can have something else. I don't know what it is. No other country in the world allows this. No other country in the world takes in a million people and makes them legal. And God bless and welcome to America. Legal citizens, year in and year out. A million a year. I'm sorry, legal permanent residents and citizens. A million a year. It's a lot. Every year we're taking in a million through our legal process. And when when Trump says, well, for security purposes, we're going to take refugees from the Middle East down from, I think, something like 50,000 to 30,000. Oh, my gosh. He's like Attila the Hun. He's a monster. Well, hold on a second. We're already taking in a million a year. Aren't we allowed to discuss that number changing? Can the number only go in one direction? Can it only get larger? This is also why, yes, we do need a wall. Because it's not realistic to expect the president is going to keep having, first of all, if we have a Democrat president, he's not going to do anything. And if we have Trump even in office for, if we're lucky, the next six years to try and stem this tide of recurrent migrant marches to the border is just not realistic by sending additional forces, by dealing with this on a one-off basis. You need a permanent barrier. You need a wall. Democrats don't want it, though, because wall, first off, would prove its utility very quickly. And then they'd all look foolish for saying, oh, walls don't work. No, I'm pretty sure walls work. You know, if you're if you're going to walk on your neighbor's property and there's nothing there, that's pretty easy. If you're going to walk on your neighbor's property and there's a 10-foot cement wall, things just got a little harder. You may think twice about walking onto their property and trespassing, right? This couldn't be any more straightforward. But they say, oh, walls don't work. It works in San Diego, San Diego sector of the border. Fence there absolutely works. So why wouldn't it work elsewhere? Oh, they don't have any good answers for you. They just don't want it to get built because once it's built, we can see that it works. And once we see that it works and it's there, they can't do very much about it. I don't think they're going to be successful with, you know, break the wall down. This is one area where Trump has an, un look, he has an unfulfilled promise. Now, as to who's behind this march, and who's pulling the strings here? I know there's a lot of theories out there. I, you know, I, I don't know. But I do know that this is not a coincidence. That you have the largest of these migrant caravans that I, that I know of. Just a couple weeks before the midterm elections. On their way to the border. This allows the media to play the emotional manipulation game. This allows them to forget about the fact that the economy is incredibly strong, to forget about the fact that all of their predictions about economic calamity because of Trump and all the things that they've said, the 25th Amendment, he has to be removed because he's crazy, Russia collusion. The, the mainstream media has wasted over a year of the American people's time on this fantasy that Trump colluded with Russia. 
Worse than a fantasy. I mean, it's a plot. It's a plot that was put into motion by anti-Trump elements in our own government to undermine the president of the United States. They wasted a year of our time on this, a year and a half of our time on this. It's insane. It is absolutely insane. But if they can get enough people at the border looking sad and looking hopeless, take lots of photos of it, lots of videos, and then talk about how heartless Trump is for enforcing the law that was the law in the books during the Obama administration about how, for the safety of all involved, and also, yes, as a deterrent, you separate people from their children at the border. You should reunite them, but this is the process that they have had. And if they do this again, I know the Trump administration's changed the way that they were going to do it because of the outcry originally, but if there's any separation whatsoever, even a temporary separation, I mean, even a matter of hours, we're going to be told that it's heartless, it's cruel, it's, you know, it's evil, it's a, it's a Nazi concentration camps all over again. I'm not making that up. People were saying that about this. People that we're still supposed to take seriously in public discourse, which is in itself just astonishing. We are in a fight, my friends, and we need to understand it as such. The other side plays dirty. What's at stake here, the future of the Trump agenda and the trajectory of this country for at least the next two years, really the next six. Well, we've got a couple of weeks to figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. We'll talk more about it right after this break. What we've got to do is fight in Congress, fight in the courts, fight in the streets, fight online, fight at the ballot box. And now there's the momentum to be able to do this. And we're not afraid of the popular outcry. We're energized. Fight in the streets, Tim Kaine says. I'm not afraid of the popular outcry. I mean, so the mobs, right? The mobs in the streets, is that up? What are we talking about there, Tim? We'll see. I told you yesterday that there were two uh, two GOP candidates in Minnesota who were physically attacked. Why haven't you heard that story until this radio show? Oh, I wonder. I wonder why. Well, some of you probably did, um, but that seems to me to be more of a news story than we're, than anything that we've heard recently about the. Uh, the way the left is acting, right? And then you also have another incident where a a Democrat operative for a group, Bridge American Bridge 21st Century, which is a David Brock group, he founded it, funded by George Soros. Yes, Soros likes the American Bridge 21st Century because it's about democracy and democratization, and by that I mean socialism. Uh, but this guy is called a tracker, which I didn't even know was a thing. I, I, well, I knew it's a thing for, you know, animals and hunting and, but I didn't know it was something you did in politics. And he follows around political opposition, which to me sounds a bit like being a paid stalker, but he followed around one woman who was the female, is the female campaign manager for Nevada GOP gubernatorial nominee Adam Laxalt. Her name is Kristen Davison, and she was attacked by this guy. He grabbed her and hurt her and left bruises on her. He has now been arrested. What the heck is going on here, folks? I I thought we were in the midst of the, you know, the Me Too movement and women's empowerment and 
why haven't you heard on all the different major networks, Fox is covering it. I mean, this is a Fox News piece where I see it. Of course, Fox will cover it. But what about all the other networks? Where are they on this? This guy assaulted a woman because he's been hired by a Soros group to essentially harass her, to follow her around. You had two Republicans who were attacked. One punched really badly, actually had a concussion from it by some crazy Democrat. There's a video, we don't have it, but of some complete loon. Producer Mike, you know what I'm talking about? There's some video out there uh, with this guy ripping up yard signs. He's a Democrat. Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. All the people that are doing the crazy stuff are on the left. Why is that? Where are the stories about Republican mobs? Where are the stories? Not that I'm saying I want them, but the point is they don't exist. That's why the left is so touchy about this stuff. It's not a good look. When the American people see what the left is really all about, when the American people see how the progressives act out, we don't like it. We don't want to give these people power. We don't want them to be in charge of more of our day-to-day lives, give them greater authority, greater influence over the economy and over the law. It's a terrible idea. I think people are waking up. Democrats have played their hand poorly in the last three months, two months. They have been showing a side of themselves that is the truth, but is one that they're usually more adept at hiding. Because the left is, in fact, the political wing of the mob mentality, of mobs in the streets, of mobs in restaurants, of kicking women at a pro-life march. Remember that one? That guy went viral. Of tearing up yard signs and screaming in people's faces, of being a member of Antifa who yells at a woman who lost her husband in 9-11 and says disgusting and disgraceful things to her on video. We played that audio for you yesterday. That's what the left is really all about. That's who they've become. And now the American people are seeing it. Democracy is not a spectator sport. It is a full contact participatory endeavor. And we may not be called to storm beaches in Normandy to defend this democracy. We may not be called to do freedom rides to make real this democracy. But right now, we are called to stand up and participate to ensure that we have a democracy to pass on to our children. Because what's happening now as conglomerating corporate power is eroding our democracy, as dark money is pouring into our system, as the rich and powerful are getting all the benefits of, of the tax breaks, blowing holes in the deficit that Spartacus wants you to believe that he thinks democracy is in peril. Cory Booker is technically his name, but I like to call him Spartacus because he said he was Spartacus. So I think that's fair. What the heck is he talking about? Democracy that, you know, we're going to hand to our children. What does that mean? This is my favorite question to ask people on the left is what, what are you really saying? What does that mean? How is it in peril? We're about to have a big election. And a lot of people are going to vote one way, and a lot of people are going to vote another way. What what is the peril that democracy is in right now? This is like when people say, oh, the First Amendment is under threat by Trump. How? Because he uses the First Amendment? Do we ever get to hear 
an explanation of this. Or It's just rhetoric. It's just empty. It offers nothing. It tells you nothing. He says, democracy is not a spectator sport. Gee, that's brilliant. Maybe you could put that on a mug and give it to somebody. Where do we find these Democrats who are so sanctimonious, so full of demagoguery, and don't add anything to the conversation? There are interesting liberals out there. There are fascinating leftists. There are people you can talk to. I mean, I know people who are anarchists that I love talking to. I know people that have all kinds of really interesting belief systems. And and at least it's worth engaging because you learn something. But the, the marquee Democrats these days, it's just all piffle. It's all nonsense. Booker and Warren and Sanders and Biden, and none of them have any, any intellectual heft whatsoever. It's remarkable when you think about it. What ideas do they stand for? Redistribution of wealth? Defending our democracy? That's not that, that's not a policy solution. That's not interesting. People have been talking about that for a very long time. It doesn't get them very far. And when it does, very bad things happen. But there's there's just nothing that's even worth listening to most of these people about. You know, Bernie Sanders has a kind of charm and a, 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 a an authenticity. That comes across because, you know, he's a guy from Brooklyn. So I like him because he reminds me of people that I know from Brooklyn. And, you know, you hear him talk about these things. You say, okay, well, that sounds, he sounds like he's well-intentioned. But then when you start to get to things like math, you go, well, this isn't going to work. This is crazy. It's a really bad idea. Same thing with all of them. What does, what does Kamala Harris stand for? Whatever the Democratic Party tells her to stand for. What does Cory Booker stand for? Same. What does Elizabeth Warren stand for? Basically the same. Bernie Sanders, same. Joe Biden, I don't know. Number one on the CNN poll recently about who they think is going to run for president. They've got nothing. And I think that's part of why there's such a desperation and why they're being violent, why they're attacking people, why they're hurting people. Because they've got nothing. Hmm. I mean, they have the usual slogans and the class warfare and all that, but I mean, in terms of candidates, in terms of a bench, you know, Kamala Harris, I see here, is is thinking about uh, giving American families, you know, $500 a month. You're going to hear more about, I think, universal basic income. I think they're actually trying it now in a, uh, trying it in a city in California, right? They're pushing for it out there. They have no new ideas. They have nothing to tell people about that can get them excited. All they can do is get people angry by telling them how terrible and awful uh, the Republicans are. I think they're also in a bit of shock. And this is where I'll talk to you uh, somewhat about the the Kavanaugh effect, which is very, very real. These senators who were leading the charge against Brett Kavanaugh in the Senate may have, in fact cause the Republicans to gain seats. I think you'll see 54 or 55 GOP seats by the end of the election in the Senate. I think we're going to go to 54 or 55, uh, which is not a huge increase, but in, in a midterm election year, it's pretty darn good. And that the fact that the House is even in play, historically, that's just such an aberration. The fact that the House is a serious contest now is because... Not only did we see what was done to Brett Kavanaugh, but also there was 
for all to see. Senator after senator with D next to their name acting in a way that was just grotesque. The worst of American politics on display. People saw this. They took note. I believe that Schumer might leave, might uh, lose his job over this one. I think that Schumer uh, is going to have to be replaced as Senate Minority Leader over what happened. It was a debacle. It was a debacle. And they know it. That's why they don't talk about it anymore. That's why there's so many fewer senators out there who are talking about this issue if they're in a close, if they're in a close, or rather if they're in a state where there's a close race going on, right? People are not discussing this. Feinstein, of course, she's California. She's saying whatever. Feinstein has said that she wants to reopen the investigation to Kavanaugh. Well, I think that Everybody out there, I know this was said uh, last night on Fox, everybody out there who's running, every every Democrat should be asked, do you support reopening the investigation into Brett Kavanaugh? That should be a question that, that press asks them because it is being put out there by powerful members of the Democratic Party. And the rest of the party should have to answer for that. Once you start getting in states, West Virginia, Nevada, places where... You know, the Democrats don't just have a blue stranglehold on it. What the Democrats did to Kavanaugh is toxic. It is toxic for them. Now, there's this part of me that always goes back and forth between with the Democrats. What explains it? Maliciousness or incompetence? I think that on the issue of Kavanaugh, it was obviously a combination of both, but they really did miscalculate. They really did believe that they could do anything to stop this guy and that it wouldn't resonate with Americans the way that it the way that it has. In fact, I think it's one of the most heartening and reassuring things that's happened in American politics, certainly since Trump's victory over Hillary, but that so many of us would rally together and understand what was at stake. It was about so much more than a Supreme Court seat. It's about the ability of the political left to destroy people without any evidence without any due process, with nothing but political malice, no fairness whatsoever. So it has been reassuring, to say the least. And I I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I really do hope that uh, the Democrats will have to look back with some degree of political agony at what they did this past summer. That's why this change has happened. That's what's going on in the country. We have seen them for who they are. We know that while they might not all be chasing White House officials out of restaurants, while they might not all be joining the mob on the steps of the Supreme Court or outside the Congress or in the hallways of the Congress, chasing Jeff Flake into the elevator, you know, all these different left-wing activists paid for by people that do not have the best interests of the country at heart. Well, not everyone's doing that. Far too many Democrats and far too many powerful members of the Democratic Party support it, encourage it, like it. And that's why the mob line has hit home with them. That's why they become so upset over it. They don't want to talk about the mob because it's real. And we are catching on. Um, 
I will talk to you more about the Khashoggi. I know some of you, I can already see, some of you are going to be asking me about the Khashoggi investigation, which the media fascination on this is driven largely by seeing an opportunity to bash Trump, by the way. That's that's what's really getting them so interested. And we'll get to that. But I've just got some more thoughts on where this midterm is going. We're only a couple of weeks away. We'll talk Khashoggi and then a whole bunch of other also fascinating issues. Team, always good to have you here with me in the Freedom Hut. Uh, We'll be back with you in just a moment. There's one question on the ballot. Does the country want to put a check on Donald Trump? Do we want to put a check on Trumpism? Do we want to repudiate it? Or do we want to validate it? Because should the Republicans maintain majority control in the House? Should they maintain majority control in the Senate? This president will not only be unchecked, he will be emboldened. And at the core, what he's doing is stoking a cold civil war in this country yes. between the American Trump people. He's the first president in the history of the country who makes no pretense about being the leader of the American people. He is the leader I of I want to take faction. out a pen and write, he's dear DNC. Yes, I MSNBC's political analysis is such trash. Steve Schmidt is among the very worst. We'll talk more about it. He's going to get another appearance later in the show. He says the dumbest stuff on TV, so that means that, you know, it's fun to use him for commentary purposes. They put him on TV a lot at MSNBC, though. What he's saying isn't true, by the way. What he's saying is is not accurate. Maybe he thinks he's being kind of whimsical or something, but it's not just Trump that's on the ballot. And in fact, what we're seeing is that it is not uh, that the, the Republicans are not treating it as though there's only Trump on the ballot. First of all, every single congressional election has its own idiosyncrasies and realities and uh, media markets. That should you think a guy that ran a very unsuccessful McCain presidential campaign should should know that. Uh, but beyond that, there's a there's a clear dynamic that has unfolded in the last couple of weeks, last few weeks, that could change this election. I'm going to tell you about it right now. Uh, and in fact, I spoke to. I'll tell you, I had a I had a chat with uh, Lindsey Graham last night. Spoke to him for about I don't know twenty minutes. We sort of sat down. We were over at Fox, and I was, like, you know, what's up, Lindsey? We weren't off the record, but I was giving him a little bit of what I think's going on. He was giving me a little bit of what he thinks going on. And here's the bottom line: the Kavanaugh effect is very real. And Lindsey certainly knows that because he had his proudest moment, I think, ever in the Senate defending Kavanaugh. But here's what's happening. And the reason that this is trending toward the Republicans at this stage of the game, because you know, D- Democrats are, are they're running a a campaign at all the local level of uh, or all the local elections, rather, uh, you know, at the state and, and congressional level of health care. You don't hear about it much, but that's what their messaging is. It's health care, health care, health care. At the national level, they're making it this whole Trump issue. But really, they're pushing the healthcare issue very hard because they know the polling shows that that actually, for the people who are going to vote, that matters to them. Republicans, though, have had a gift recently. And what you see is that the Kavanaugh effect in any state that's red where there's a Democrat who's trying to pull the usual, you know, Democrat, oh, I'm kind of centrist on these things, I'm sort of a conservative Democrat head fake, is that's not going to fly. That's not going to work. Um... The dynamic as it's playing out right now is the uh, the dynamic is playing out is that in states where 
it's clearly a red state and the conservatives, the Republicans have the advantage. Trump showing up for base turnout. Right? Trump is showing up to make sure the base remembers that they need to be a part of what's going on here in this midterm election. But the dynamic that I think is really interesting, and you're not hearing it talk about in the media because they're, they, are, they are actively wishing in a way. They hope it goes away. And it is that in uh, elections that are in states where it's kind of a, you know, a, a Democrat in a, in a red state, you know, it's a little bit of a, of a closer call all across the board. They want people to come and speak about the Kavanaugh issue. They want Lindsey Graham to go and speak because that's a reminder to anyone who's toward the center of just how you cannot trust the Democrats with power. So in very red in very red states to get the base out, you're going to have a lot of talk about you're going to have Trump visiting and Trump's getting the base fired up. He's going to get them to show up at the polls. Right. It's great. But in states where it's a closer call where it's a little more purple, where there you're going to have the Lindsey Graham's of the GOP showing up and saying, remember what they did to Kavanaugh? You can't put these people, you can't entrust these people with power. You are not being a responsible citizen if you think that these Democrats should be given any any more authority than they already have over the lives of the American people. And Kavanaugh could be the game changer. Think about what a political miscalculation the Democrats made there. Think about what that what really happened. They thought that they would stop a Supreme Court seat from going to a conservative constitutionalist. And even if they couldn't stop it, they would be rewarded by their base for just going thermonuclear to try to stop it, just do do scorched earth, do everything they could. But what we're seeing is they didn't anticipate that in a lot of close fought elections in suburban parts of America, a lot of Republican women are furious about what happened to Kavanaugh. Furious. And they want to make a statement. and They're coming out to vote. You know, if you are a pink hat wearing, you know, Me Too t-shirt emblazoned left-wing feminist, you already were going to vote and you hate Trump. doesn't matter. But if you're somebody who's like, well, you know, sometimes I'm a little bit you know, not not enamored with some of what Trump has done. But you're you're a, a Republican woman and you see what they did to Kavanaugh, what the Democrats did and what that would mean for the future of this country going forward. A lot of them are absolutely fired up about this. And that could be the game changer. It could be the enthusiasm among center right women in suburban districts that makes this house content. It's going to be down to the wire. This is going to be really close, I think. Could still go to the Republicans, although that would feel like a near miracle, but it could still happen. And it's going to be because of Kavanaugh. So, folks, that fight that we had to defend Kavanaugh was critical. I've got a cup of it in my hands right now, my friends. Black Rifle Coffee. And I'm drinking it black because it is delicious coffee. In fact, I've turned a bunch of people in my office and just in my day-to-day life into Black Rifle Coffee drinkers. Once they try it, they realize that this is as good as any coffee you'll get anywhere. And on top of that, it's a company that you will appreciate. 
It's veterans that run Black Rifle Coffee, and they founded it, by the way. And now they're all about patriotism, freedom, and delicious brew all day, every day. I start my morning off, and as you know, it's very early. I start my morning off drinking Black Rifle Coffee because I think it's so delicious. And I know that I can have it delivered to my door. So I don't have to go shopping for coffee anymore. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. You'll get 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. I had a chance to brief the president on the travels that I returned from last evening where I had traveled both to Riyadh and Ankara. had a chance to talk with in, uh, in Riyadh with the king with the Crown Prince, with the Ford Minister, uh, all of the United States uh, counterparts there. We made clear to them that we take this matter with respect to Mr. Khashoggi very seriously. Uh, They made clear to me that they too understand the serious nature of the disappearance of Mr. Khashoggi. Uh, They also assured me that they will conduct a complete, thorough uh, investigation of all of the facts surrounding Mr. Khashoggi and that they will do so in a timely fashion and that this report itself will be transparent for everyone to see, to ask questions about, and to inquire with respect to its thoroughness. There you have the update on the Khashoggi investigation, which is getting a tremendous amount of of international media attention. It's got a lot, a lot that people are going to focus in on. I mean, the details about what they say happened inside a consulate. You know, a consulate is... In the world of international relations and and diplomacy, it's the closest thing to a kind of medieval cathedral that you can get, you know, a consulate or an embassy. It's supposed to be a a safe place and a safe space, so to speak. So to use it as a torture and murder and dismemberment chamber is really, uh, really beyond the pale. I mean, it is is truly barbaric. And it, it seems very, very, very likely that that is what happened here. Now, there's all this pressure, all this pressure on people like uh, Pompeo and Trump and others to take action right away. You're, you're noticing that this is the refrain. The refrain is, you know, why haven't they done something? Why haven't they done something? When at a minimum, there has to be a willingness to allow the Saudis to present whatever their real explanation is going to be which hasn't happened yet. We had had reporting earlier in the week that they were going to say that it was essentially a rogue agent who made this decision on his own. Oh, by the way, speaking of a rogue agent making a decision on his own, a a member of the what was believed to be the Khashoggi team uh, has mysteriously died in a car crash. Hmm mysteriously dying in a car crash. That that should strike everybody as quite a coincidence under the circumstances, right? That's not something that I think any of us could readily ignore here or should ignore because there's definitely foul play at work there. Uh, this guy did not was not involved in this assassination and then just all of a sudden happened to, you know, miss a stop sign somewhere. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't buy it, not for a second. I know you don't either. But this is where things get tricky because the Saudis have a pretty clear path here to say this wasn't Mohammed bin Salman. And the only way you'll be able to prove them wrong 
would be if you were willing to most likely expose some very sensitive sources and methods and have some kind of collection either of Mohammed bin Salman or the people around him. And that's going to be the, that's the kind of decision that is going to be at the very top level of any government, U.S. government, any government, whether they're going to let that information get out if they have a source. Remember, it could be a human source. right? We don't know. But if you're going to have proof, if you're going to show evidence of this, you would have to also most likely be willing to say where it can, you know, say what it is, which means you're going to expose very likely how how you got it. Uh, so I, I don't know. I don't know what they've got quite yet. Um, but I do think that there is a, a very real possibility here that the Saudis are um, sure they're going to suffer some consequences, but they're going to probably live to fight another day diplomatically on this one because they're going to say that it's just something that happened. They weren't in control of it. And, you know, things things go bad and uh, they'll be better in the future or something like that. And you got to remember, the Saudis are in the region, a pretty important player for us. Play clip six. This is Secretary of State Pompeo again. I told President Trump this morning that um, we ought to give them a few more days to complete that so that we, too, have a complete understanding of the facts surrounding that, at which point we can make decisions about how or if the United States should respond uh, to uh, the incidents surrounding Mr. Khashoggi. Um, I think it's important for us all to remember, too, um, we have a long, since 1932, a, a long strategic relationship with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They continue to be an important counterterrorism partner. Uh, they have custody of the two holy sites. Uh, they are an important strategic alliance of the United States, and we need to be mindful of that as well. It's an important ally, not something that we want to just discount and just fly off the handle and decide that we're going to try and make some big statement here. There are plenty of places all over the world where very, very bad things happen to people on a daily basis. We can't make all of it our problem. I know that there's symbolism here. It's a journalist. He was a he was a green card holder. He was a permanent resident of this country, not the same as being a citizen, but he definitely had very real ties to America. This was ha- this happened on foreign soil, however. And so the people that are calling for an investigation, I think just don't realize what all the hurdles are in place of that investigation. We have no basis. We certainly don't have any jurisdiction, but no basis for sending any kind of investigative team unless one, the Turks allow it because it's Turkish it's Turkish sovereignty here. I mean, it's on Turkish soil. And two, the Saudis would have to allow it because it's a consulate. So you have multiple levels of complexity added into what would already be a, an investigation that is highly sensitive. And I don't know who we think we can really trust in that whole process either. I mean, if we don't send Americans to do this, I would be very suspicious of what information we get and how we get it. But if we do send Americans, um, well, I just I doubt that's going to happen unless they were brought along, kind of riding shotgun, so to speak. Vice President Pence, however, is saying that there will be consequences. Play clip 10. Well, I can assure you that we're going to follow the facts. And the Secretary of State received a commitment for a thorough and complete investigation by the Saudi government. It'll be completed in just a matter of a few days. When we have that information, and we won't solely rely on that information, we'll collect all the evidence. And then the president will have a decision to make about what the proper course of action is for us going forward. But the world deserves answers. Uh, If what has been alleged occurred, 
Uh, if uh, an, an innocent person lost their life at the hands of violence, that's to be condemned. If a journalist in particular lost their life uh, at the hands of violence, that's an affront to a free and independent press around the world. Uh, and there will be consequences. There will be consequences, the vice president says. You'll notice that people are pretty, pretty thin on details of what those consequences would be. And it's because not only do we have to be concerned with the immediate Saudi response, which would be both overt and covert, I'm sure, against our interests in a whole bunch of different ways. We also think about the unintended consequences here of what would happen from a major fracture in the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. Truth is, we don't want a major break with the Saudis. Um, The Saudis are, in some ways, useful right now. And here's what nobody really wants to say. The scariest scenario for America when it comes to Saudi Arabia in in a lot of ways is actually a revolution and then democracy. Uh, The Saudi people in charge of what goes on in that country, I mean, representation in Saudi Arabia. Look, just remember what happened with the Arab Spring. We thought, oh, it's going to be great in Egypt. They're going to elect people, Western-style democracy. It's going to be great. There's going to be human rights, and women are going to go to school, and all these things, which, I mean, that was happening in Egypt beforehand, but you know what I mean. It's going to be a really big step forward. And then the Muslim Brotherhood came into power. Let me tell you something. If they had elections in Saudi Arabia, the Islamists would be in power there, too. And I would offer to you probably much more hardline Islamists than anybody wants to admit or or would uh, would realize right now because the clerics that are allowed to preach in Saudi Arabia right now only do so with the acceptance and the and the say so of the government if you actually had the top pulled off this thing and the people of Saudi Arabia were calling the shots and the preachers were whoever they were listening to uh, it would be bad very quickly. And that's that's kind of a nightmare scenario. It's one of the reasons why the Saudis and the Pakistanis, for example, get away with as much as they do in terms of our relationship with them. It's because the worst case scenario is not that they're mad at us. The worst case scenario is that the government is overthrown in either of those places. In Pakistan, because you have nuclear missiles in the equation, it's particularly scary. Uh, in Saudi Arabia... We have very few powerful military allies left in the Middle East. It's dwindling. We have Israel, and then it starts to get pretty thin. Jordan is a good ally, but it's a small country, not not a particularly wealthy or powerful one. Uh, the Turks are increasingly Islamizing. They can't be counted on to be our friends in the Middle East. Saudis, obviously, we've got this problem playing out right now. We've got our concerns there. Egypt is just not what it once was, not as reliable a partner, and it's got its own problems. Uh, And you look around the region, like, who can we turn to? Who will be helpful? I mean, Iraq, we're just hoping the place doesn't collapse into some kind of ethnic civil war. And you got Iran, who clearly is not particularly fond of the United States. So when we talk about consequences for the Saudi government, because remember, it would be against the whole state of Saudi Arabia. I mean, I don't think that they're just going to say, we want uh, Magnitsky sanctions against just a few individuals. I don't think that would be a sufficient response. People are talking about a $100 billion arms deal uh, getting shifted around in one way or another, getting stopped, whatever they, they end up doing. Uh, this, these are major consequences. These are major consequences. And then you have to look at the other side of this, which is the people 
who are the loudest voices on this issue, many of them, many of the people who are the loudest voices on this, do not have America's interest necessarily at heart. They view this as an opportunity to both criticize and antagonize the Trump administration. That's right. As I've been telling you, this is supposed to really just turn turn into a means of getting at Trump and saying that no matter what happens, it's his fault. We'll get into that in a moment. The world of social media is full of lots and lots of different ways that they can make you disappear. They'll tell you that it's just because of a violation of terms of service. They'll say that, oh, it's not about politics. It's just because we're trying to keep everybody on here safe. Well, you know what? You don't need the left to determine what you say and how you say it. You want a social media platform where you can share your thoughts and unburden your mind of whatever you think is important. Snippy.com is the place to go. Snippy.com is a new social media site with no conversational health mandates, no left-wing bias, no moderators or administrators who are going to jump in and say, hey, you're not allowed to talk about the Second Amendment. Nonsense. You can say whatever you need to say at snippy.com. I've got an account there. Check it out for yourself. S-N-I-P-P-Y.com. Totally free to join. Totally free to post. Check it out. Snippy.com. And all the Russia collusion investigation news comes as there is reason to believe, or at the very least question, the President of the United States has been colluding with Saudi Arabia to cover up and explain away the brutal murder of a Washington Post columnist in order to protect his own financial interests. Take a moment to digest that, because it is a real possibility. Donald Trump has pushed back against this very idea, insisting, quote, I have no financial interest in Saudi Arabia. But no one is asking about Trump interests in Saudi Arabia. The issue, of course, is Saudi Arabian interests in Trump. That's a reckless and stupid thing for Chris Hayes of MSNBC to say, but he doesn't care. Trump is colluding with Saudi Arabia? Somehow Trump is, is, it's almost like Trump was the one who gave the order for the Khashoggi hit. That's, that's the way they seem to take this. Now, for some people, I think Chris Hayes is in this boat based on his work. This is just pandering to their rabidly anti-Trump audience. But then there are others that I think are actually truly deranged and have, have really had a break with reality over the issue of Trump. And you see it coming out once again on this whole issue of what does it tell us that Trump has not yet, I don't know, invaded Saudi Arabia? I don't know what they think he's supposed to do, but oh, that's right. It's really all Trump's fault. Some guy gets killed in a consulate in Turkey by Saudis, and it's Trump's fault. Play 12. President Trump has basically signaled that he doesn't care. All, the only thing that matters to him is dollars and cents. I mean, it's shocking that he was more worked up about Canadian milk than he is about the death and dismemberment of this American Saudi journalist. And so that basically sends a message to dictators all over the world. They can do whatever they want to their own people. They can even do whatever they want outside their own borders. So President Trump hasn't expressed any concern about the fact that the Russians are killing dissidents in the United Kingdom or about the fact of, of the Saudis, you know, murdering uh, somebody in, a, in their consulate in Turkey. And so this is a very bad day for, for dissidents and Democrats around the world. Yeah, it's, it's always Trump's fault, you see. There were no dissidents that were being murdered before Trump came into office. There were no totalitarian regimes. And all, Trump created all these bad things. These people are, are, are really crazy. I mean, they, they are at, you know, sitting on the subway, talking to a toothbrush 
and asking when they're going to have dinner together level now. It, it, this is getting out of hand. More worked up over the Canadian milk thing than he was over Khashoggi. It's not intelligent for the president to be worked up and angry over Khashoggi until he at least gives... If he were to jump out right away, as they suggest they want him to, and say that Saudi Arabia is responsible, there's going to be huge consequences, and I'm going to personally yell at, you know, Mohammed bin Salman. If you were to say that, you know what the Saudis would say? See, they won't even let us do the investigation. They're lying. They're trying to pin this on us. This isn't true. You can't fly off the handle right away. You need to look at what you got. You need to look at the facts. It's not It's not like Khashoggi has been kidnapped and every passing hour, you know, he's gone. He's never coming back. So people that are trying to create this rush this rush of action from the United States in response to this, that's that's not how we do things. That's not how it should be done here. But others go even further than Max Boot. So Max Boot is saying, well, because Trump is so cozy with dictators all over the world, uh, he is, is basically responsible. Steve Schmidt, who I, I think is, you know, I've said before, I mean, Anna Navarro is one of the dumbest political commentators on TV, but Steve Schmidt may be dumber. And it's just amazing having seen having seen how he's the hero in the HBO movie about Sarah Palin's uh, ill-fated vice presidential run. And then you see the real Steve Schmidt. He's like, yeah, you know, I just don't like what they're doing, the Republicans and stuff, and, you know, it's just murder and the international and stuff. And here's Steve Schmidt. Let, him, let, you hear, let, let, let you hear how close the impersonation really is. 14. He is the leader of a faction, and he is dividing us. And those divisions will take years and years and years to heal. We are one people. We are one people. We are the American people. And when you see a president of the United States doing what he is doing to this country, not to mention the unraveling of the U.S.-led liberal global order that emerged from the horror and the catastrophe and out of the death camps and the ruin of a war that killed 80 million people, his fidelity to democracy is nil. Yeah. His fidelity to small L liberalism is not there. And you see it with his complicity, and it is complicity in the murder of a Washington Post columnist by a Middle Eastern thug. Complicit in the How is he complicit, you imbecile? How is he complicit? What the heck does this have to do with Trump? That was on MSNBC. They should be embarrassed that they would air that kind of stupidity. Complicit. But everything he said was wrong. Everything he said was, oh, he doesn't believe in democracy. Really? Trump gets shot down by judges in the Ninth Circuit left and right over stuff. It's it's ridiculous. But, you know, he goes, okay, we'll see you in court. How is how is Trump destroying democracy? How is Trump doing any of the small L liberalism? You mean like cutting regulations and cutting taxes? That's not, That sounds like small L liberalism. Just... The guy, everything he says is not true. He's an idiot. I don't like to say mean things. He's just dumb. Doesn't know anything about international relations either. The guy should stick to like, you know, not talking on TV. How about that? Rod Rosenstein, you got time for an interview where you say the Mueller investigation is appropriate and independent, but you can't answer Congress's questions about something you said in a meeting with the deputy head of the of the FBI at a time when he was, frankly, acting head of the FBI because Mr. Comey had been fired by the memo you wrote. So the, the fact that Rod Rosenstein was a no-show last week is, is something that is just not right. He's obligated 
as a guy who is Senate confirmed, when the chairman of the committee that has jurisdiction over your agency asked you to come to Congress and testify, right. you were obligated to do that and you're supposed to do it under oath. And he was a no-show, yet he's got time to talk to the press about the Mueller investigation. I want Give to read me a break. Rosenstein thinks that he's kind of a law unto himself, folks. Deputy Attorney General, guy overseeing the Russia investigation, really has no problem acting like he is part of his own branch of government, and really he's running his own branch of government. That branch of government is the FBI. Theo, you ask for a miracle, I bring you the FBI. Let's see if you can get that one. But no, really, it's it's true that Rosenstein has somehow managed to stay in this role. And, well, I think it's because he knows that the hashtag resistance, and Trump knows this too, so it's not worth getting rid of him, the hashtag resistance would completely and utterly freak out if, in fact, there was a, uh, a, a removal of Rosenstein from his duties. But some people don't care. You got the chairman of the Freedom Caucus, Mark Meadows. He is calling on Rosenstein to step down as a a deputy attorney general because lawmakers are looking into reports about how Rosenstein once talked about wearing a wire to record President Trump. You know, I I really do believe that if when I was a little, a little, uh, little nobody CIA analyst, if I had said that I was going to wear a wire to try and entrap just even the CIA director, I I think I would have been escorted out of the building by by armed security. I think they would have been like, okay, you're gone. If I said that in a meeting in front of people, but for the deputy attorney general to say it, and I've gone back and forth on this, I don't I don't think he was kidding. I think that became the excuse, but the more I thought about it, and I'm not sure what the latest, if you're like, Buck, two weeks ago, you said he was kidding. Yeah, but I thought about it more. I don't know. Look, I wasn't there, right? So all I can do is base it on the things that I've heard. But, you know, Rosenstein uh, has... Hey, look, he's an Obama administration holdover, and he's clearly very tight with the DOJ bureaucracy, and the bureaucracy protects itself. But that's why Mark Meadows has finally had enough. Here's what Fox News reports about Meadows uh, of the Freedom Caucus. He says that he made the comments about Rosenstein stepping down as James Baker, the FBI's former top lawyer, was questioned behind closed doors on Capitol Hill earlier today about Rosenstein's reported comments as well as other decisions made by the Bureau. Meadows criticized Rosenstein for not accepting a recent invitation to testify before the House Judiciary Committee about the record, uh, reported comments. You know, Rosen, there should be accountability. There should be accountability for this. People should not, uh, people should not be able to do and say whatever they want in a senior government role like that just because getting rid of them might feel kind of messy. That's not the only deep state. It's kind of a deep state update today. Deep state store I wanted to tell you about. Uh, you have a this Treasury employee who is charged with leaking financial FinCEN reports on Trump team people. She was apparently arrested with a flash drive in hand. Here's a quote from Fox. The top Treasury Department employee was charged with leaking confidential financial documents pertaining to former Trump officials was apprehended the previous evening with a flash drive containing the allegedly pelfered information in her hand. Oh, my gosh. Caught red-handed or flash-handed? No, that's weak. That's weak, Buck. The dramatic arrest late late Tuesday came on the heels of other high-profile leak-related prosecutions on the administration, 
which has pledged to go on the offensive against leakers the president has have called traitors and cowards. Uh, so this is Natalie Mayflower Edwards, who is a senior official at the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. She gave a reporter bank reports, allegedly, documenting several suspicious financial transactions. This is so dirty. As, as I've been telling you, I really want you to understand, this isn't leaking information that is necessarily accurate or even meaningful. This is leaking rumors, in a sense, that the federal government has on hand that they can look into. But a suspicious financial transaction does not mean anything. Does not mean anything. She also, by the way, released information about Paul Manafort, uh, Richard Gates, Maria Butina. How much more of this do we have to see before we realize that this was all a manufactured narrative? From the dossier to the uh, General Flynn lying about the ambassador conversation, there were government employees that had a collective nervous breakdown and then took it upon themselves to just be disgusting little hashtag resistance fighters inside the flabby folds of the bureaucracy and take action to take down Trump and his people. You don't see this happening on the other side. You don't see this in the other direction. Some more details here on this senior financial, uh, senior government financial official and, and what she did. Edward saved thousands of these suspicious activity reports along with thousands of other files containing sensitive government information to a government-provided flash drive. She transmitted them to the recorder by taking photos of them and texting the photographs using an encrypted application, according to charging documents, which said Edwards eventually confessed to doing so. FBI agents obtained a pen register and trap and trace order for Edwards' cell phone during their investigation. Oh, my gosh. You know, you, you had this... So you have this woman... Who who provided all this suspicious financial information? Remember, no, 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 uh, nothing clear here about anything that Trump did that's wrong. But she provided all this information to reporters on Trump people to try to take them down. It's very illegal to do this. It's very destructive to do this. You also had reality winner. Remember her? She got I don't know five years in prison, something like that. She leaked information having to do with Russia, and the information didn't prove anything. It was really just trying to make another, you know, trying to pile on to the, oh, well, the Russians interfered in the election thing. Yeah, well, we know about that. But she leaked information. She was an NSA employee or contractor. I can't remember now. But all these different government figures that are leaking anti-Trump stuff. I just, I really want you to think about this. Who in the federal government during Obama's eight years, remember, and he was very aggressive about leakers, but who leaked something specifically to take down to hurt the Obama administration from within the federal bureaucracy. Think of one illegal leak of classified or sensitive information that wasn't about whistleblowing, that wasn't about, you know, settling some personal score or, you know, trying to cozy up to a journalist or whatever, but that was specifically tailored, specifically chosen so that it would hurt President Obama personally hurt his reputation, hurt his administration, the people around him. The answer is, you know, I, I, I can't think of one. And we're only two years into the Trump administration. I could sit here and rattle off a whole bunch of people. And they've only found a few of the leaks so far. By the way, that, that Senate staffer uh, who just got 
who just pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about his contact with reporters, he was almost certainly leaking information. I mean, that that's what it was all about. He was leaking information uh, in order to get the press to run stories that were damaging about Russia collusion, all this stuff. You have, you do, these are people who, when you put them together, I know Trump, Trump told me he doesn't like the term deep state, but you know what? It is a free country and I like the term deep state. But these are people who have profaned their offices and their access and decided that they would wage one, a one person war against the duly elected president of the United States. And it's despicable. It is despicable, and they're going to have to really make examples of them. Remember, this is not whistleblowing. This is score-settling for politics and using the government's sensitive and classified information to do so. And we're going to find... There's more of this. Some They've got to get, and I, I wonder if they ever will, but they've got to find out who leaked the Kizilyak-Flynn conversation because that was, that, that was just appalling. I mean, that was such an, a a betrayal of protocols for classified and, and to, to let that information, to, to send that information out, not let it get out, to send that information out purposefully just to try to take down a decorated general with you know decades of service to his country because he had the poor judgment in the minds of the left of being tied to Trump. There has to be consequences for this. And we're starting to see this week some arrests. There will be consequences. We are a service economy. Our economy is driven by service. We're 80 plus percent of our GDP, 80 plus percent of our job creation is services. So when you're a service economy, the way to stimulate your economy, the way to grow your economy is to allow consumers to buy goods as cheaply as they possibly can and use the rest of their money to buy services or if they're lucky enough to save. Anything that raises the price of a good doesn't make sense for our economy. Even if they're paying it to the government, as a tariff, it's just another tax. Before we uh, close out here, I just want to ask you real quick, if you had to give Trump a grade on the economy, A through F, what would it be so far? Well, you know, I'd have to qualify that. I would say on a general appearance is pretty good. Regulations are down and taxes are down. But I, I give him more credit, which is pseudo credit, and that is he's a great cheerleader. And there is such a thing as subjectivity in, in cheerleading, you know, an economy that people do respond in a positive way, uh, this way. But the economy has done better. But it's all, it's sort of like you doing well if you could borrow a million dollars every, every month, you know. So, uh, but the economy on the surface is good, but it's not sound. It's not lasting. It's based on debt and the payment will come due soon. I'm sure many of you recognize that second voice. That was Ron Paul, a man himself, who's saying it's all going to come crashing down. Before that, you had Gary Cohn, who is very much the establishment voice in in where our economy is right now. And he's saying, you know, services got to keep it's all about services, got to keep goods cheap, got to get people buying stuff at, you know, Walmart. And I was going to say Sears. R.I.P. Sears. R.I.P. But these are very different views of what's going on right now. Here's what I would say about the Ron Paul. Uh, let, let me let me deal with the Ron Paul side first. That was from an interview we did on Rising, by the way, where I got to speak to former Congressman Paul. Uh, he's right. Ron Paul is right. Mathematically, historically, he is correct. Uh, there is a very clear history of fiat currency in 
uh, in the history of the world, and it is that fiat currency always ends in disaster and financial calamity. It's very clear. There's, there's no exception. It, it always ends very, very badly. Now, that said, Ron Paul saying that the economy right now is not sound and we have too much debt and all that, he can be right, but on what timeline? And if Ron Paul is right that the economy is going to crash 50 years from now, you have to ask yourself today, how much do you care? I know we'd all like to say, oh, for my kids and my grandkids, and but how much do you really care? And beyond that, if it's 50 years from now, how do you live the next 50 years, right? How do you try to make money in the markets or how do you try to move on in your career and pay off your house, deal with the, the basic financial challenges that we all have, right? Telling, telling you that the stock market might go to zero and our, our dollar may be worth nothing, which I don't, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But even if it were true, if that happens in 50 years, that's not very useful information right now. So Ron Paul's been saying that the economy was going to crash out for a very long time. And he was kind of right in 2008. We came on the precipice. I get that, or 2009. But I don't think that he's right right now. Uh, I just put his, I put his words in there because I do think that it's a long-term warning and especially as we are considering now the possibility of dealing with some of the entitlement programs that are the big drivers of our debt, we got to remember that we're, we are heading in a, we're heading to a bad place. It might not be two years from now, it might be 20, but we are heading to a bad place as an economy unless we do something about it. And it's very hard to get the political will. You know, look, this is, I go home and I'm like, you know what? I, I really wish I'd get lean again enough that, that I would just see all my ab muscles, right? That'd be fun. But you know what's more fun than than putting myself on that pretty strict routine of calories, uh, calories in, calories out, and all that? You know what's more fun? Eating a big gluten-free donut when I get home. That's a thing. They exist. Or, you know, deciding to just eat half a wheel of brie. That's fun right now. And when you're dealing with long-term projections in the economy, isn't Brie amazing? Brie is always so good. When you're dealing with long-term projections in the economy, does that sound a little too fancy? I like the Brie. The Brie is delicious. It is fantastic. Uh, I also like American cheese. I had American cheese on my burger yesterday. It was delicious. Uh, nobody wants to be the one that has to think long-term. No one wants to be the one that uh, has to think strategically about this. You want to deal with your immediate needs. And so Ron Paul, as I said, he's right, but when? And we just don't know. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take action. It just means we need to be aware that the action's not going to come quickly. And we should balance out what, our, what, what, what risks are acceptable, what systemic risks are acceptable to our, our economy, to our children, grandchildren's economies. Uh, and then you have Gary Cohen with tariffs in China. I, I really hope that Trump is right on this one. I've given him a lot of credit on the tariff issue, and um, I've been willing to say that I, look, I know what the I know what the argument is against tariffs, and I know that the the smart set is almost always and entirely opposed to tariffs. Trump has taken a different approach, and I think he has earned the right to try and play it out however he can. That said. Uh, I do have some concerns about where this is where this is going right now for the economy. It's been a choppy few weeks, and people have saw people have seen some stuff that's going on right now in the economy, and that's that's when you got to start really thinking about what's what's happening next. Because I'm telling you, the Democrats' easiest path to power is a recession where they turn all this rage they've created on the left and they mobilize it, 
and they're going to mobilize it in the direction of socialism. That's what they're going to do. That is what is coming. Uh, so, by the way, I really do recommend you all check out buckevent.com. It's uh, a project I'm working on with Sansbury Research. It's going to talk about where the market is going. That's different from the overall economy. But if you want to know where the stock market is going, buckevent.com. Smartest guys I've ever met when it comes to the market. And we're doing a big event on October 24th, totally free, buckevent.com. Sign up, check it out. You'll see. I'll be hosting it with some of their experts. I'm just a host. I'm like the game show host, but they're the guys that are actually spinning the wheel. You know what I mean? Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. So do check that out. But I'll, I'm going to keep watching the economy and see what's happening. I just hope that things stay steady until Election Day. You know, I just saw the CEO of Global Verification Network earlier this week. We caught up in the swamp here in D.C. And I said, you know, how's business going? How is it you're growing so rapidly and getting so many new clients on board? He said, well, simply put, Buck, we are all about making sure that people's data is secure, that they get fast answers, and that they know that all the work is being done here in the United States by trained professionals. That's what you get when it comes to background investigations and vetting with Global Verification Network. Also, whenever you call them, you'll get a person who answers your call and answers your questions right away. Call 877-695-1179. That's 877-695-1179. Tell them Buck Sexton sent you. This is a veteran-owned and operated company, my friends. You can also go to mygvn.com. That's mygvn.com for all background investigations. Whatever size your company, whatever size your business, mygvn.com. Double standards abound on the left. You know this. There are things that... Democrats can do and say and either get away with entirely or be given much more latitude to do. And if a conservative says or does the exact same thing or uh, engages in the same activity, their career is over. They have to be chased out of the public square. And we have to be lectured about that person's uh, malfeasance for a very long time, as though we're somehow complicit in it or, or we did something wrong, too. This is a separation in American life, a a dual track system of public judgment that really does need to come to an end. I've had enough of it. I I know you've had enough of it, too. You especially see this in the court of public opinion as it relates to political correctness, uh, which is so toxic. And there was a poll, I think it was actually in a, a poll at the Hill that we did about how people are just fed up with political correctness across party lines. I mean, a, a solid, very solid majority of Americans like political correctness is out of control. It's crazy. We don't hear much about that anymore, uh, but or we don't hear much about this part of it anymore. But Trump, you will remember, used to talk a lot about political correctness. He would say, I'm not going to be politically correct. And now we see that because of his actions and because of what he says and does, we are in a less politically toxic environment when it comes to political correctness than we were before. I'm not saying it's it's perfect. In some ways, it's gotten even worse because of Trump, because they're so upset, and now they just want to pile up as many scalps as they can of, of the political opposition. And one of the more effective ways for the left to do that is to find some transgression that anyone who's a Trump supporter or anyone who's a conservative has, and then use that to destroy them. It's not anymore to get an apology, by the way. This has been the change in recent years. It's not that they want an apology. They want you 
to bend the knee, and then they want to behead you after you've, you know, begged for forgiveness, essentially, metaphorically speaking. You know, they, but they want you to apologize so that they have a confession with which they can destroy you. And that's the change in the Trump era, is that at least now, maybe the rules are even crazier, but because of Trump, because of how he acts and how he carries himself, there's a sense that we can fight now. At least we can fight. We don't have to take all of this lying down. And I, I think that's a much that's a much better place for us to be. I, I'd rather go down fighting than just accept that the left gets to dominate this issue and use it as a weapon against all of us. But on the double standards issue, Louis Farrakhan, I'm sure you're familiar with him. He's a uh, he's a black religious figure in this country, the Nation of Islam. He's been around for a long time, and he was invited to speak. I think a few years before I was at Amherst College, he was invited to speak at UMass Amherst, although it might have been a bunch of years, I forget. But I know that he spoke at UMass Amherst and might have even given their, I don't know if it was their convocation or their you know end-of-year graduation speech or something, but you know the keynote address. He gave a big speech there. And somehow he's able to continue to exist in in the public sphere in this country with... Yes, criticism, but certainly not being absolutely shunned. I mean, not being forced out of the public square in any meaningful sense. And you really have to wonder why that is. Why is it that Farrakhan continues to, or is able to continue saying the kind of things that he says, doing the things that he does? He doesn't get banned from Twitter, by the way. He, to my knowledge, has not been kicked off of social media platforms. And he says stuff like this. Play clip three. To the members of the Jewish community that don't like me, thank you very much for putting my name all over the planet because of your fear of what we represent. I can go anywhere in the world and they've heard of Farrakhan. Thank you very much. I'm not mad at you because you're so stupid. So when they talk about Farrakhan, call me a hater. You know what they do? Call me an anti-Semite. Stop it. I'm anti-termite. Not an anti-Semite, he says, but an anti-termite, referring to Jewish people in this country. Farrakhan's a disgrace, and he should be recognized as such by any moral and decent human being. He's a disgrace. Uh, What he says is truly hateful. What he says is destructive and pulls at the very fabric of this country. But I would wonder why is it that there aren't calls to boycott Farrakhan? At least not ones that you hear from the mainstream media. Why is it that he doesn't get banned from social media platforms? And also, why do we hear so much about the hate under the Trump administration? And, and it generally points, oh, it points back to Charlottesville right away. When at Charlottesville, you had a, a group of losers walking around with tiki torches that 99% of the country would mock and ridicule and ignore. Uh, 99.9%. And yet, with Farrakhan, who is saying horrific and hateful and anti-Semitic things, he is giving speeches in front of thousands of people, thousands of followers. He's a very prominent figure among 
uh, among a certain set of Muslim, well, Nation of Islam, Muslim Americans. He's treated with reverence by thousands and thousands of people. How is what he says any less hateful? How is what he says any less disgusting than what you'll hear from some of these uh, white nationalists? He's calling Jewish people termites. I mean, it, it actually makes me mad to hear it. It makes me mad to even quote it and say it. He's a complete disgrace, yet he's been in public life in this country for decades, for decades. Why isn't there media segment after media segment calling for him to be denounced? Now, we could all start to fill in the blanks here with why we think that there's this double standard, but the point is that there is a double standard, and it's one that we can't ignore when we're hearing from the left about how they just want to fate, uh, they just want to fight hate in society. If they just wanted to fight hate, then they would make sure that there was less hate in society on all sides. But really, they use the term hate as a weapon against the right now, as if the only hate that can exist is from a very, very small, insignificant, angry band of losers who call themselves either you know white nationalists or neo-nazis or any of the above the truth is that people of any background can hate the truth is that people of any ethnicity or religious denomination can be hateful so if one's goal is to eliminate hate from society that has to be universally applied it can't just be only sometimes and only against some people. And Farrakhan is just a glaring example of how the left is unserious when it comes to eliminating hate from our society. They only want to use that moral currency, right? Because we all want to be a part of that of that crusade. We all want to get rid of uh, hateful, destructive, vile rhetoric. Right? Nobody supports that stuff. But they don't want our help, really. They just want to keep it as the right is where hate lives. And there's no such thing as hate on the left. Antifa, there's no hate there. Black Lives Matter, there's no hate toward cops. Farrakhan, well, they'll admit that Farrakhan is hateful. And many in the media now are starting to turn on this issue and realize that they can't allow this to continue. But why has it taken so long? And why has the criticism been so muted? If the left is going to have any standards at all, maybe they should start enforcing them now. So I end up taking a lot of trains and I got to use public Wi-Fi. That puts me on edge, right? When I'm going up to New York or going back down to the swamp or somewhere in between, I really don't want to have to worry about my data getting hacked by somebody because I'm on an unsecure network. Well, I decided to take this into my own hands with a virtual private network courtesy of ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure that my online data is safe. It has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly, and all it takes is $7 a month, and you can make sure that you don't have to worry about people getting your most important private and, yes, valuable information. Protect yourself online today. Find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com buck. That's expressvpn dot com slash buck for three months free with a one-year package expressvpn.com slash buck you were working as a bartender and decided that it would be a good idea 
to run for office. It's really one of the most remarkable stories I've ever heard. Do you stop and think about this from time to time and go, yeah. I can't believe this is happening? Yeah. A year ago? Oh, yeah. People just lose their mind. They're like, wait. It's like back in the day. When, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, people will be like, is this real? And it's like, yeah, no, it's... Yeah. In the party. Yeah, yeah, they, they do. And it's, yeah, yeah. In their own hometown. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's because we're from the Bronx. It's like exotic to us or yeah. something. She was yeah. like, yeah, no, my husband is a, is a huge fan of yours. Motion activated tchotchke behind me that's like singing Jingle Bells. Actually is, uh, you know, and they're telling me, you know, and, you know, they, they said, you know, that's right, you're, and... <laughs> I kind of grew up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah, like totally. And like, yeah, like whatever. Because like, so like, oh my gosh. Like, oh my gosh. Like I'm on Jimmy Kimmel. And that's Ocasio-Cortez, for those of you who didn't recognize the voice. The one who talked about how activism and, like, organizers are, like, organizing the activists of the organizational, of the activizers. She is already a political hero on the left, and she hasn't even been elected yet. Isn't that, isn't that quite a thing? But you see this. You see this continue to happen, where the left will anoint someone, right? The, the, the Democrats will decide... That somebody was that somebody is really, really just awesome, just awesome, just so cool and like so amazing. And even if they don't win the election, even if they don't win, we are still led to believe, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, this person was really groundbreaking. Uh, this person did something really incredible. You know, here's a, here's a, an exact here's an exact example. I guess that's not an exact example. That's not a thing. Here's a good example. There we go, Buck. Use your words. MSNBC, of course, tweeted this out today. Beto O'Rourke's campaign has transcended politics to become something of a political cultural phenomenon. Uh, You mean that a bunch of coastal libs decided to give this guy who is a clownish fraud a lot of money so that he could lose? To Ted Cruz by, I keep saying it, and I'm going to keep repeating it so that what happens, you're like, wow, Buck knew. Ten points. He's going to lose by Ted Cruz, uh, lose to Ted Cruz by ten points. I mean, he's going to lose worse than Jimmy Kimmel lost to Ted Cruz in one-on-one. Which, if you saw that, that was a heated, that was a heated battle. Uh, they played basketball against each other, and Ted Cruz kicked Jimmy Kimmel's butt because Jimmy Kimmel wanted to talk all tough about it. And they really, they really were going after it. I mean, they were trying to, they were trying to win. Anyway. Uh, Beto O'Rourke's campaign is going to is going to fail. He will be elected to nothing. And the fact that I even have to call him Beto O'Rourke is is interesting to me, because re- remember his name is not Beto, his name is Robert, and he's not Hispanic, so he's chosen a a Hispanic nickname. I mean, this is be like if all of a sudden I my name was my name was Buck, and I was like, no, call me El Bucko. That would be strange. I think most people would would view that as a little. A little obvious, right? a, a little lame, maybe a little pathetic, uh, but it doesn't matter to the left because they feel like Beto O'Rourke. Maybe, maybe that false authenticity that that name gives him is enough to push him over the top and, and actually defeat Ted Cruz. You know, I will say that the best thing that like, he's very smart, he's a very good debater. There's a lot of good things about Ted Cruz, but in many ways, the best thing that Ted Cruz has going for him 
is how much the left hates him. The right people hate Ted Cruz. And so you know, based on his enemies, that he's over the target and he's a concern to them. So I always try to remind myself of that because, you know, Ted is not the most suave of, of individuals. He's not somebody that you would necessarily want to invite to, you know, hang out for a few beers. He said that himself. But the left has this habit of taking people who are just not that impressive and lose. And then we have to hear about how, well, they lost, but they changed American politics forever. And Beto O'Rourke's one of them. This guy will have spent $38 million to lose a Senate seat in Texas. Wow. You mean a bunch of rich people on the East and West Coast who don't like Beto O'Rourke, or sorry, don't like Ted Cruz, might have made this a national news story? This is not exciting at all. Remember Wendy Davis? Wendy Davis, the woman who did that whole filibuster, if I recall, over abortion. Uh, She wore sneakers during it because she had to stand up and she was so cool, the whole thing. You know, she was she was considered absolutely amazing. I'm trying to think there was one other person who the left uh, just embraced it was Wendy Davis and someone else who who just got clobbered in the actual election. But but they they'll say, oh, well, that, that person was just they were amazing anyway. Always trying to find a way here to just make it all seem better. But I just thought that was so funny. Beto O'Rourke's campaign has transcended has transcended politics yeah right that's to, to borrow from mark hemingway uh beto o'rourke's i mean that's a very grandiose way to say losing hat tip to mark for that one because it is absolutely true it is a grandiose way to say to say losing uh, but you know what part of it is as well they have to create this narrative now so that there's a, an ability later when he inevitably loses and he will lose to make it seem like this wasn't just the media fabricating this whole story. I shouldn't say fabricating. Manufacturing, right? They manufactured it. They, they constructed it. It's not that there was nothing there, but they made it much more potent than it would have otherwise been because they believed in this guy, because they love him, because, you know, he's telegenic and... You know, as I said, I mean, he shouldn't have to worry about debates with Ted Cruz because he could always just flee the scene. Ho! You know, but that one, a little DUI, a Dewey, that's what they used to call the NYPD, a little bit of that going on. Uh, That was back in the day. So, you know, it's just another, it's another classic example of this. It's another instance of, oh, here's a candidate that the media just fell in love with and we're going to have to hear about this person for a very, very long time, even though they lost. Because I assure you that this person is not going to win. Um, it's it's just going to be one of those things. And they'll tell, oh, John Ossoff. That's the other. Thank you. John Ossoff, that guy who kind of looked like Pajama Boy from the Obama ads. And he ran in, what was it, uh, in Atlanta. And, oh, gosh, he's supposed to be. Yeah, no. John Ossoff is not uh, not somebody that we needed to hear quite so much about. Well, you know, wasn't wasn't even really that close. So that's what they do. They decide that a candidate is worthy, and then they go all in. And then when it's not, and they've been telling us, oh, it's going to be a huge upset. You know, just like with the Ted Cruz situation. You'll notice this doesn't happen in the other direction. Taking us back for a moment to media malpractice here, 
When was the last time you heard a ton about some great out of nowhere, really conservative candidate that really appeals to conservative America who was going to take some Democrats seat somewhere and then in the end just got crushed, just got crushed. I, I can't remember. I can't think of one place where that has happened. So they may be getting bored of us talking about how the media is biased, but I would just prefer the media stop being biased and then we wouldn't have to talk about it. We're not, we're not making this stuff up. This is true. This is true. Oh, wow. I see here. Kira Knightley banned her daughter from wearing, uh, from uh, watching rather Cinderella and the little mermaid. Ah, yes. Celebrities, celebrities don't like fairy tales anymore. This is now a movement. It's going to catch on with some of these very famous, very rich idiots. We'll get into this in a moment. Is there anything that the liberal left won't try to ruin? Is there anything that they can just all agree, you know what, we're going to let that thing just be a source of, of joy and, and amusement and fun for people without turning it into an opportunity for awareness raising or social justice stuff? Or, you know, is, is there anything that falls in that category? I, I, I don't know what the answer is to that right now, because it feels like the answer is no. There's nothing that they won't pollute with their hyper-politicization. Sports, not sacred anymore. Oh, yeah. ESPN is now MSNBC with sports. So we have to hear from all these athletes about what their different political opinions are. And then if we say, you know, that guy's not particularly well-informed, we're told that we're being you know, dismissive and rude and depending on the athlete's ethnicity, racist. So, okay, oh, so we now we have to listen in silence while these athletes who have no particular knowledge or political skill or, or background are lecturing the rest of the country about an issue, right? So there's nothing that seems that really escapes. But fairy tales, you would hope, might be in something of a special category. You know, I, I think it's acceptable for us to think that, you know, fairy tales would be a place that we're all just allowed to say, oh, that's pretty cool. But nope, that's not the case. Kristen Bell, who is a, uh, a very attractive, but from what I gather, not particularly bright or wise actress, is concerned here, according to Parents.com, concerned that Disney princesses teach daughters bad lessons. This is the uh, subheading of the piece. When it comes to stranger danger and conversations around consent, Frozen's Anna has a lot of questions for Snow White. Um, She says, quote, Every time we close Snow White, I look at my girls and ask, Don't you think it's weird that Snow White didn't ask the old witch why she needed to eat the apple or where she got that apple? I say, I would never take food from a stranger. Would you? And my kids are like, no. And I'm like, okay, I'm doing something right. Wow. Uh, good, good job with that one. You must be really proud. Uh, and then the Apple question is not the only one that Belle, a Disney princess herself, as the voice of Anna in Frozen, has after reading the tale. Quote, don't you think it's weird that the prince kisses Snow White without her permission? Belle says she has asked her daughters because you cannot kiss someone if they're sleeping. Oh, my gosh. You know, you know what else you can't do? Uh, eat a poisoned apple and go into a coma for many years. Uh, you, you know what else you can't do? Hang out with like seven magical dwarves in a little hut in the woods. Like it's a fairy tale. 
It's a fairy tale. You would think that they would just let this go, but no. And I, I've heard other people talking about this too. This is not just this is not just Kristen Bell. No, now now even Disney cartoons are going to come under assault from these social justice warriors because they view everything as an opportunity to lecture the rest of us. Everything that they do is a chance for them to tell the rest of us why we are wrong about something and why we have to uh, why we have to listen to them. And it's it's just a shame. It really is. You know, they're not even letting kids be kids anymore. It's like that other actress who said, you know, my twelve year old is an activist. If your twelve year old is an activist, she's not spending enough time at the at the playground or she's not spending enough time playing house or dress up or whatever twelve year old girls do. I have no idea. But she's definitely not an activist. And she definitely shouldn't be an activist. Uh, but you know, now now it's it's such a cultural pose, and that's what you have to keep in mind. That's why these actresses and these other Hollywood celebrities, these people do this, because just by talking about issues of consent, you're trendy, because that's what the left and the dominant cultural paradigm, which is, of course, controlled by the left, that's that's what they're doing now. So they talk about issues of consent, and they'll talk about issues of sexism, and you know, just so much, there's really so much bitterness that's at the heart of contemporary feminism and well progressivism in general i mean progressivism is largely fueled by resentment and envy i mean the progressive the progressive ideology that you see in this country which is really just a a cleaned up and warmed over marxism in a lot of ways uh is about envy and and resentment of other people and that's a it's an incredibly powerful force unfortunately because we are human beings and we are prone to envy but it's exploited constantly I mean, this is something that the other side will always use to their advantage because you'll find people who are resentful. People don't want to think that they've made perhaps bad decisions and that they need to learn more, they need to do more, they need to take action in their own hands. They'd rather be told that it's somebody else's fault. And this is why with progressives, they'll talk about consent. And, you know, in this case, we're being told that the uh, the prince from, you know, Sleeping Beauty, it's his fault somehow. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. We will get more from Snippy.com as more of you join Snippy.com. Just remember that that is a way that you can be a part of the show. Uh, let's get to it. Nicole writes in with, Hey, Buck, just heard you talking about the Mean Girls case on the podcast. This kind of thing always hits home for us because my husband, when he was going to culinary school, interned at an after-school program to teach high schoolers, minors, and he was in his early 20s, how to cook. One of the girls accused him of a sexually inappropriate relationship. Fortunately, he has class and had witnesses at the college to say he was in class at the time she alleged he was with him. Uh, still, he was investigated by the police and nearly lost his job. Turns out the girl had a boyfriend her parents didn't like, and she was hanging out with him after the program for hours every day. We women look sweet, but sometimes it's only skin deep. Uh, Nicole, I, I hear you. And you know, I, I know people that have had stories that are also similar to that in that somebody was accused of sexual impropriety, and it later came out that it was, it was a complete fabrication. 
But even the fabrication can ruin your life. Even the fabrication can be very, very destructive. Uh, Keith writes, uh, as the saying goes, if you put a hundred monkeys with typewriters in a room long enough, eventually you'll get Hamlet. So go the primaries, the Democrat Party, with the media and the politicians looking for a narrative going forward in a post-Kavanaugh world. Maybe they'll write the ultimate remake of Spartacus. Uh, hmm. Okay, Keith. Interesting stuff. Alan. Hey, Buck. This MBS story is sounding more like a replay of Henry II and Beckett. He didn't quite say kill Beckett, but his lackeys thought he did. Maybe something similar happened with the Saudis. A miscommunication, if you will. Well, I've thought all along that because of the nature and degree of the crime here, it was most likely that this was a very personal beef with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So MBS wanted Khashoggi not just gone, but wanted him to suffer and wanted to make an example of him. That's always been my my sense of what of what happened here. And whether or not they'll ever be able to really definitively prove that the order came from the very top, who knows? I would I would say it it strikes me as very unlikely, but we will have to see. I will see. Jennifer writes, any good book recommendations? Uh, well, Jennifer, maybe the best way that I can give you a book recommendation, because people ask me this uh, regularly. In fact, one of my family members asked me earlier on in the week uh, about what books I would recommend. And so instead of just going with what's first off the top of my head, I can tell you what I have read recently on my Kindle, uh, Directorate S by Steve Cole, really, really good about post-2001 Afghanistan, and it really focuses on the U.S. relationship uh, with Pakistan as well in the whole Afghan Afghan problem. Uh, also, I could recommend Red Notice to You by Bill Browder. It's a very good book, very quick read. Uh, Conquistador by Buddy Levy. That's about uh, Hernan Cortez. Uh, Pandemic by Sonia Shaw. If you find uh, disease and, well, pandemic disease to be interesting, I think you will uh, enjoy that book. What else do I have on this list here that I've read? Uh, Outlaw uh, (laughs) Outlaw Platoon. Outlaw Platoon by my buddy Sean Parnell. If you haven't read that, it's an excellent book. Sean does a really good job with that one. Submission by Michel Houellebecq. It's a novel uh, by a French novelist about the Islamization of Europe. Those those would all be those are all books that I've read and uh, all books that I could very much recommend to you. Uh, so there you go. I hope that's a good start. That that was just off my Kindle on my uh, iPhone app. But that's what I was reading that one off of. So Adam writes, "Hey Buck, I'll keep this as short as possible." Your show last night hit home when it came to how the left has radicalized and a form of psychological warfare is now going on, not just with prominent figures like yourself supporting the president or espousing conservative principles, but also regular folks like myself, where if you outwardly express your belief in small government, individual liberty, etc., you not only run the risk of being labeled a Nazi, but also have your business or family threatened. I want to speak out, but I have my own business and a family to protect two eight-month-old twins. What's a liberty-loving person supposed to do? Because I don't want to cede the battlefield of ideas to the left. Blog anonymously? Support your sponsors, as I do, and also support outlets like CRTV, NRO, etc. I hate the idea of being anonymous uh, because I'm not saying anything hateful. I just say what I believe. And this is coming from a guy who didn't even vote for Trump. Thanks for listening. Taking care of the fight daily. Shields high. Ah, 
yeah, Adam, I think you've got the right idea. If this is not your path, I mean, if you do not actually work in conservative media, don't suffer the consequences publicly of being a conservative unnecessarily. Now, that doesn't mean don't be a conservative because you're a conservative in how you act every day and how you deal with other people and how you view yourself as a citizen in this country. Uh, And you're also a conservative in the actions you take to support other conservatives. So while it is certainly uh, helpful for me and for the show when I tell you, please do check out our sponsors, please do use those codes, you know, that is how you show what you care about. And that is how you show what what matters to you, Uh, because especially in a business like radio, it's about every single person who listens to the show. All the support that you get from every individual is what matters, and that's what gives you a show. So who you listen to, whose sponsors you go check out, and also you know, what you do to support those who are on the front lines of the ideological fight. Those would all be ways that I would say uh, that's how you get into it, and that's how you keep your shield high. Uh, Tino writes, Dear Buck, Great fan here. Army veteran guard instructor, military historian, and now ended up in the film business in L.A. I was listening to your show talking about how immigrants uh, now know what to say at the border. It reminds me of how we found pamphlets both in Iraq and Bosnia uh, when kicking down doors, outlining exactly what they should say, what country to go to, and where to go in that country, how much money they can ask for and expect, and what to claim. That is why Europe has been filling with refugees fleeing economies, not war, Europe has been deliberately flooded by these people. The efforts and pamphlets were professionally printed and uniform. I suspect a similar effort is taking place south of our border. It seems there's a deliberate attempt to flood the West with people who will not integrate uh, and deliberate effort among the intelligence services in Europe and especially Germany to destroy any patriotic politician or effort to gain any power. Um, so there you go. And if you ever need a sofa in Marina del Rey, it's always here. Shields high and sword sharp. Tino. Well, Tino, thank you so much. And thank you for, thank you for your service. And, uh, Marina del Rey sounds great, by the way, especially this time of year, man, it's already getting kind of cold here in, in the uh, swamp, man. Now, now it's not just a wet, damp place of no morals and no scruples. The swamp is now also getting cold, which is not fun. Uh, so that's something I got to keep in mind here as, as I try to get acclimated to being a swamp creature. Uh, but Tino, um, I got to say, uh, you know, it, th- this showdown that's coming at the border, it, it is orchestrated. I can't say by whom or how exactly, but it's definitely, it is definitely being put together by people. The timing of this is not an accident. And this is going to be a real, this is going to be a real showdown for the country. So, we will see. Um, we have Brandon writes, Buck, been looking at Twitter today. Don't let the clowns get to you. They're talking at you now because you're a prominent or you're becoming a prominent young voice. Uh, much respect. Keep up the good fight, Brent. Well, thank you, Brent. And yeah, no, the clowns don't don't get to me. Um, I, I don't worry about that stuff. And occasionally I have a little fun slapping around the trolls. But I, I generally ignore because it's just a waste. Uh, it's just a waste to engage with with imbeciles and losers on Twitter. Why? It doesn't mean anything. I like Twitter for following the people that I want to follow and for being able to communicate with all of you. I, I don't need Twitter for left-wing, fake socialist, quasi-Marxist, hipster wannabes. Uh, that, that's that's not why I'm on Twitter. Uh, but occasionally I got to buck slap some people. So, you know, you got to do what you got to do. 
James writes, all this Antifa talk has me wondering, how long are we supposed to sit on our hands? When is it going to be fair to fight fire with fire? Well, James, we don't want to become what the enemy already is. And the good news is, for all their whining and uh, for all their upsetness and everything else, I don't think upsetness is a word, rage, there you go, that's a better word, Uh, they don't have power right now. They aren't going to get power either if enough Americans decide to send them a rebuke by showing up at the polls and making sure that they do not take power. Jackie writes, uh, Love you, Buck. I really try to watch Rising. Crystal never disappoints. She always does something that makes me say, I'll never watch again. Uh Uh-oh. Well, I decided to give another try today, and she didn't disappoint. The segment with guests Jennifer and Matt, Crystal laughed and ridiculed the guest Matt for his comment about Texans and Gravitas. And then she stopped the conversation to tell the guest, Matt, that what he said about Beto was gross, but wouldn't stop interrupting him or let him explain what he meant by the Beta remark. She was rude and confrontational, and her behavior toward your guest was why I just can't watch Rising. Crystal never fails to get a last dig in to make one more comment disparaging those she disagrees with, and I just get tired of it. I, appar- I applaud your parents for teaching you to hold your tongue and just let things go. You do it every day on that show. Don't know how you do it. Shields high. Love you, Buck. Jackie. Uh, Jackie, I just thank you for your support. And, uh, it is not, it is not an easy thing to sit and have to be respectful, right? It's one thing to sit with somebody and you can argue and you can say whatever you want and try to own the libs. But when you have to sit and and, tr- and be respectful of somebody else, uh, day in and day out, when you really, really disagree, I will tell you, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, that is fair. And as for the situation that you mentioned with that specific guest, You saw it. Anyone else can see it. And um, I will leave it at that. That's going to be it for today, team. Thanks, as always. Shields high.